Hello, Bridgetown. I'm Gavin Bennett, and this is the Bridgetown Daily for Wednesday, March 3rd. I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like every other Sunday that one of our teachers quotes from Genesis 1, 2, or 3, or says, turn to page 1 in your Bible. Maybe I'm alone in that, but you may be surprised if you go back through our teachings and count about how often we refer to these chapters. Now, fair warning, I'm about to do that. But before I do, I want to say a quick word on why we do this. The first few chapters of Genesis do not just set up the Bible, they set up all of creation. They give us a glimpse into the world around us and help us make sense of it all. Or more realistically, they give us a framework by which to begin to understand what in the world is actually going on. It's in these first few pages that we learn some really pivotal things, things about who God is, who we are, and who the enemy is. Now, these chapters aren't a science textbook, right? They're Jewish meditation literature. Meaning that what we learn on the first few pages of the Bible is not how things exist, but why. And about why they are the way they are today. And that's so important because why is the question that haunts us each time we experience a loss or a tragedy, big or small. We get a parking ticket. Ah, why? We lose our job. Oh, why? We pull onto the freeway into dead stop traffic. Ugh, why? We lose a loved one to suicide. Why? Why is the question that haunts us, the question that really matters? Why is sometimes the only word we have? Why is what we lie awake about thinking at night? And why is the question that every reader of the scriptures should have in mind while journeying through the Bible? Like the genius literary work that it is, the Bible seeks to set up the cosmos or the world in a particular way. The first few chapters of Genesis become a kind of not scary, let the reader beware of sorts. It's almost like the author is trying to say, before you start reading this weird book, here are a few things you'll need on your journey. The Bible is dense at times, it's a desert at other points, it's super confusing, it's crystal clear, it's hopeful, it's painful, it's beautiful, it's all of these things, but it's also going somewhere. So buckle up and take a few things with you. So with that, let's look at page one of the Bible. There's so much more here than we have time to develop or uncover, let alone read. So I will only point out a couple things. The first thing the authors of the scriptures seem to want us to take with us on our journey happens to also be the first things that we learn about the Bible's main character, God. Now, it can be kind of funny to think about that sometimes, and some of us may actually never have thought that. God is the Bible's main character. Not David, not Paul, not Abraham, not Moses. God is the only one in every piece of it. As our friends at Bible Project say, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Every word, every story is pointing forward or backward to God. So look at Genesis 1 verses 1 through 2. Quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, unquote. And then God begins to create. We all know the story. But what about those first two verses, the ones we normally skip? Why begin with them? Well, 
I wonder if it isn't in part to learn the first two foundational things about God. One, God moves towards chaos, not away from it. Quote, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, end quote. The waters in ancient Near Eastern world symbolized chaos or darkness. So God moves towards chaos. And second, as God moves towards it, God brings order to it by creating out of it. God makes something out of the chaos above which he hovers. Not only does he not avoid it, he does something with it. Huh. So the first thing we're supposed to know about God is that unlike we sometimes think, he does not move away from chaos, but rather he uses it as an artist uses paints or as a child uses craft supplies, taking various odd end pieces and ordering them into one masterpiece. God is seeking to make something. So that's the first point. God sees chaos as opportunity. His response is not fear or anger or anxiety. Rather, he is moved to create by bringing order. Now, fast forward a bit for another thing the author wants us to take on our journey of life in the scriptures. It comes after creation in which we learn about other important things about God, such as he likes beauty. He entrusts women and men equally as image bearers, ours being the only religion to do so. He loves giving gifts and hanging out with his creation, et cetera, et cetera. After all of this, the author points out something that we need to know about God's adversary, who is later on called Hasatan in Hebrew, or the Satan, or the accuser. We see him in the story in Genesis 3 in the form of a serpent in God's good garden on the tree of testing from which God told Adam and Eve not to eat. As Adam and Eve, which conveniently are also the Hebrew words for humanity and life, approach this tree of testing, the accuser says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And at this point, the reader who is paying attention goes, no, God actually did not say that. But for one reason or another, Eve gets caught by this misquote of God, giving the shady character a foothold in which to stand as he succeeds in convincing them both that God was wrong. We can get lost in the details here, but just as the first thing the author of Genesis wants us to know about God was that he creates by bringing order to chaos. So the first thing we learn about God's adversary is that he does the exact opposite. He throws chaos at disorder to decreate or to distort. God creates by bringing order to chaos. The enemy distorts by bringing chaos order. Now, if we stopped there, we'd have this Wild West showdown and be biting our nails, unsure about what's going to happen. Can God create quicker than Satan can distort? But again, the details reveal why this isn't the case. And this is so much more than semantics. The author, I think, is trying to tell us something huge about this world, the world we inhabit, specifically that God creates and the enemy distorts. So while Satan is the opposite of God, he is not God's equal. Meaning God can bring life, the enemy cannot. God can make things, the enemy cannot. God can establish order through creation, the enemy cannot. For the powers of darkness to be able to do anything, something has to already exist. 
They cannot bring something from nothing. That ability belongs uniquely to God. Satan can only distort reality. He can only bring chaos. This paradigm then helps us understand a bit about the world around us. The things of the enemy do not and cannot exist on their own. They are merely distortions of God's good reality. Now, there's the temptation in some streams of the church to ascribe to God's sovereignty all things that are, be them good or bad. But the first few pages of the Bible don't seem to tell that story. Good belongs to God. Evil does not. And while evil is the opposite of good, again, it is not its equal. Why? Because it cannot exist without having something good to begin with, to mar. It cannot exist on its own. It is parasitic in nature. War and violent anger then becomes an evil distortion of peace and patient problem solving. Sickness, an evil distortion of health. Cynicism, an evil distortion of prophecy. Pornography and adultery, an evil distortion of intimacy. Death even, an evil distortion of life. God does not need to stoop to use the enemy's tools to accomplish his goal. God has stronger and better tools at the ready. God does not use nor does he need to bring distortion or chaos against order to establish his kingdom. God does that by bringing order to chaos and distortion. Here's what I'm trying to say. One of the most significant power differentials between God and Satan is that Satan cannot create. And this point cannot be overstated. Creation is a power unique to God alone. Why does this matter? For two reasons. One, if God alone can create and Satan can only distort, then any evil in our world can be traced back to something good. Do you feel stuck that God isn't taking away your desire for pornography? Well, maybe that's because your desire is actually for beauty and intimacy, which were things that God gave you in the first place, and so he won't take them away. He wants you to experience beauty and intimacy. The work then is not to repress your sexuality, but the deeper work of integration. You cannot kill what you have not blessed. Bless your desire for intimacy and beauty as good before trying to kill your addiction to broken sexuality like pornography. Next, there is always a way for God to restore what Satan has distorted. It is literally impossible for Satan to distort something beyond repair because it would require him to have made something new. And he can't do that. So back to feeling stuck in pornography. You may not see a way forward, but God does. You may not know how to choose life and flourishing and health and wholeness, but God does. In fact, it's his deepest desire for you. God's glory, Irenaeus said, is humanity fully alive. Do you feel stuck in your marriage, in your drinking, in your compulsions towards binging TV shows or smoking weed? First off, welcome. Naming it is so important because you cannot kill what you have not named. 
And second, there is a way out, even if you can't see it. Reach out and find someone who can help you find a way forward. Now, what then is God's relationship to evil? Well, if evil is the chaos being thrown into places of order and beauty, page one of the Bible tells us that God's relationship to evil is something of an artist to clay. It is one who brings order and creates beauty out of it. The artist does not make the clay, she uses it. And in the same way, God's relationship to evil is as the great artist, or I guess to be more green, the great recycler. Every bit, every piece will get restored, reused, and made new. God who does not will evil also wastes nothing to bring beauty to it. And that is a promise. While he does not will the evil in our lives, he will mock the enemy by making something beautiful out of it. If not in this life, then in the one to come. The scriptures say that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And God through Jesus mocked death itself by coming back to life and making a way for all of us too as well. And he can't not. It's what he does with evil and darkness and chaos. His very nature, according to page one of the Bible, is to transform it to beauty, to hover over the chaos in our lives, to create from it by bringing order to it. Now, back to that story in Genesis with God's adversary, the serpent, who led the humans into sin. How does he do it? The enemy gets these two humans to sin by inviting them at the tree of testing, which that name should not be lost on us, the reader, to redefine good and evil, to decide for themselves what is good and what is not, to set their own metric for obedience. Sound familiar? It should. This idea that the enemy invites humans to redefine good and evil on their own terms starts here in Genesis and serves as a pattern that extends all the way through the scriptures and even into our own world today, to me and to you. The, the temptation around us is the same as it was for Adam and Eve, to redefine on our own terms what is good and what is not eating the fruit we hope will make us like God. And it is in this way that the enemy tries to make us who have already been made in God's image into his own image. Because what is his image? That of distortion and disorder. And distortion and disorder can only lead to death, which is why the scriptures say over and over that there are two paths laid out for us, that of life and that of death, and the paths are our own choice. Whose image will we be formed into? It is our choice. If it is God's, then God gets to decide on good and evil, wise and unwise, helpful and unhelpful, and not as a power play, but because he actually knows. He is not like us who so easily wander and stray. Now, to end, I want to read a liturgy from Douglas McKelvey's Every Moment Holy, Volume 1, called A Liturgy for First Waking. As I read this, take each breath slowly. Reflect on what it means that you are the result of God stepping into chaos and bringing order through creation, and that he'll do it again. He has called you good. 
He is not the source of chaos and disorder in your life, but he is your way out. In the words of the psalmist, lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. This is a liturgy for first waking by Douglas McKelvey. I am not the captain of my own destiny, not even of this new day. And so I renounce anew all claim to my own life and desires. I am only yours, O Lord. Lead me by your mercies through these hours that I might spend them well, not in harried pursuit of my own agendas, but rather in good service to you. Teach me to shepherd the small duties of this day with great love, tending faithfully those tasks you place within my care and tending with patience and kindness the needs and hearts of those people you place within my reach. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord Christ. I deposit now all confidence in you that whatever these waking hours bring, my foundations will not be shaken. At day's end, I will lay me down again to sleep, knowing that my best hope is well kept in you. In all these things, your grace will sustain me. Bid me follow and I will follow. Amen.